Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 370, Breaking Bread. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jeff, Taylor, and Emma for signing up already. Earl Godwin and his family were back, baby. Well, mostly. Swain Godwinson, unfortunately, was dead, having died during his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Swain wasn't the only one missing from the family reunion. Godwin's youngest son, Wolfnoth, and Swain's son, Hakon, were still being held as hostages. And they were currently in the hands of the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard. And we have reason to believe that their presence was missed by the Godwins. The records give the impression that the Godwins were a close-knit family, despite the occasional conflict regarding Swain. And Godwin in particular is on record for being close with his children. So the loss of Swain and the imprisonment of Wolfnoth and Hakon must have weighed heavily on the English aristocratic house, even as they had their power and wealth restored. But make no mistake, the house of Godwin was on the rise. And they weren't the only ones. A rising Godwin lifts all boats. For example, Bishop Stigand of Winchester was now Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, having replaced King Edward's hand-picked Norman advisor, Robert of Jumiege. And Stigand was actually a pretty classic Godwin appointee, in that, like Godwin, he was unabashed about his acquisition of power and entirely unwilling to relinquish any part of it. And I mean this very literally, because Stigand was a pluralist. Now, pluralism in the 11th century wasn't the kind of pluralism we think of today. Typically, when we hear about pluralism, we think positively on societies containing many cultural groups who peacefully maintain their practices and identities. But for the medieval church, pluralism meant something very different. It was the term for when bishops held more than one see at the same time. And when Bishop Stigand became Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, he refused to give up the Bishopric of Winchester. And that was a huge problem for Stigand, because the Catholic Church hated pluralists. And the reason why the Church opposed it was because it was essentially religious double-dipping. Stigand was drawing income from his new see in Canterbury, but by refusing to give up Winchester, he was still drawing income from there as well. And I mean, it's easy to see why he wanted to do that, right? He was getting paid twice. The problem, though, was that while he was getting twice the pay, he wasn't doing twice the work. After all, there's only so much Stigan to go around. Now, in the best case scenario, Stigan could draw an income from both seas and then outsource his duties in Winchester to a deputy, who would then be paid a modest sum. And incidentally, that's actually how many modern law firms work. The partners take on a case, then the associate works that case, and then the partners get paid, and then the associate gets their meager salary, even though they did all the work on the case. It's a pretty classic profit extraction scheme, which isn't great in any circumstance, but it becomes particularly egregious when your job is supposed to be shepherding souls away from eternal damnation. 
So this wasn't great on religious grounds, but beyond the simple religious duties, there were also some rather temporal issues at play here as well. Because pluralism was a very real threat to the power of the Vatican. Now, over the course of this show, we've all become familiar with the way power and wealth builds upon itself by concentrating into fewer and fewer hands. And in our modern life, we even have mathematical equations that can show how wealth will outpace inflation year upon year through nothing more than its own momentum. Thomas Piketty got particularly famous for his breakdown of the situation. But ultimately, all the equations point to is a reality that we've known for a very long time. Money makes money, and power breeds power. And the papacy had both. So knowing how wealth and power grows upon itself, how eager do you think the papacy was to have bishops begin to consolidate wealth and power on their own? I mean, if you wanted to create a rival pope, pluralism would be a pretty good way to go about that. So yeah, the papacy didn't like pluralism on religious grounds and also on more earthly political grounds. And here we have Godwin's friend, Bishop Stigand, and he was doing it anyway. Probably because money makes money and power breeds power. And you got to respect the stones on this guy making this move, considering that Stigand only got his seat because Godwin and his sons had rolled into London at the head of a pirate army. And now we have him openly breaking the rules and basically setting up his own religious fiefdom. So yeah, it didn't look good. And making matters worse, Robert of Jumiege, formerly Archbishop Robert of Canterbury, was an accomplished tattletale. You might remember that it was Robert who told King Edward that the Godwins were regicidal murderers who were plotting against the crown. And honestly, while the Godwins were many things, it doesn't seem like regicide was part of their deal. Which means that Robert wasn't just a tattletale, he was also a lying little sh**. So naturally, when Stigand became Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, Robert hitched up his robes and headed down to Rome to tell Pope Leo IX that Stigand was a filthy pluralist who'd stolen his seat with the help of a family of murderous pirates. And Pope Leo was not pleased with what he was hearing. And the fact was, he was already unhappy with Stigand, because Archbishop and part-time Bishop Stigand hadn't come to Rome to receive his pallium. And by doing that, he broke with tradition and he was probably signaling a lack of fealty to the Pope. Though, in Stiggins' defense, that probably wasn't the craziest move either. His elevation was controversial, and things in Rome were already pretty tense, with Rome and Constantinople jockeying for supremacy. So my guess is he didn't want to jump into the middle of that just for a scarf. But the fact remains that unlike his predecessors, Stigand was controlling the See of Canterbury without the appropriate fashion accessory, which meant that the papacy hadn't formally recognized him as the archbishop. Making matters worse, the Normans had recently become a massive concern for the papacy. Like, not a faraway, gee, should Christians behave like those guys concern? but more like a, yikes, those Normans seem like they really want to conquer parts of Italy, and I live in Italy kind of concern. And Robert of Jumiege was a Norman. And in the 11th century, avoiding conflict with these guys was a priority. So Pope Leo IX summoned Stigand to Rome to answer for the charges leveled by Robert of Jumiege. 
and Stigand let that call go straight to voicemail. Now, there's some dispute over what happened next, but for Pope Leo IX, this was clearly the last straw. And some historians say that Pope Leo told Stigand that he had to stop acting like an archbishop. You're not an archbishop, Stigand. You can't sit with us. Just go back to Winchester and be a bishop. However, other historians point out that it is quite possible that Pope Leo excommunicated Stigand over this whole situation. And the reason why there's a debate about this between scholars is because we know that Stigand would indeed end up getting excommunicated at least four times by at least four successive popes. And honestly, Leo probably excommunicated him as well. So my guess is it was five times by five successive popes. Stigand got fired a lot, but it doesn't seem to have slowed him down because he just kept showing up to work and cashing those checks anyway. So, things in the English church were going great. But speaking of excommunication, Stigand was just a minor sideshow compared to what Pope Leo IX was dealing with at roughly the same time. And this other excommunication was so significant that we still today are living with the religious and cultural fallout from it. Now, I'm not a theologian, and this isn't a religious podcast, but I am going to do my best to give you the quick and dirty version of what happened here because it is important for what was happening in medieval Europe. And as such, I feel like you should have the basics. So, at about the same time that Stigand was giving the Pope the silent treatment, Pope Leo was dealing with another staffing issue. Specifically, he was dealing with Patriarch Michael of Constantinople. Now, Rome and Constantinople were incredibly influential centers of religious power for the medieval Christian community. Large parts of Christendom revolved around one or both of these centers, but they were also culturally and politically distinct, with goals and incentives that didn't always align. And as such, the two had plenty of things that they'd been in conflict over throughout the centuries. And one of the main sources of conflict was that the Pope, whose title means father, believed that Rome had universal jurisdiction, which means that he believed he was in charge of the whole show. He was the vicar of Christ. Meanwhile, the patriarch, whose title also means father, believed that the Pope was just the bishop of Rome, and Rome wasn't in charge of all of Christianity. Instead, Rome was just one part of the Pentarchy. Constantinople was another separate part. And as such, the Pope didn't have the right to tell Constantinople what to do. So what we have here is a conflict that really couldn't be easily resolved. And as such, the dad in Rome and the dad in Constantinople had been arguing for centuries. But this latest dad fight was getting really heated. Like, catastrophically heated. Over what, you ask? Well, it's complicated, and it has a long history. But the short version is that the church in Constantinople didn't like the Roman habit of fasting on Saturday. And they also really hated the way the Roman church made bread. I'm not kidding. You see, the Roman church didn't use yeast or baking powder or any kind of leavening agent. And as such, their bread that they used for the Eucharist was more like a cracker. And, well, Patriarch Michael and the church in Constantinople insisted that they really needed to make bread properly. And since the Pope wouldn't address the Patriarch's concerns, and he wouldn't even fix his garbage crackers, 
Patriarch Michael responded by closing all the Latin-style churches in Constantinople. And Pope Leo and the Roman Church didn't take that very well. Because as anyone who bakes can tell you, a lot of love goes into that dough. And an attack on a person's bread is an attack on that person himself. So Pope Leo fired back with both barrels, reminding Patriarch Michael that Constantinople had a long history with heresy. And presumably, only heretics would hate the Holy Cracker. So maybe, just maybe, Patriarch Michael needed to chill out about the f***ing yeast. And then, really wanting to hammer his point home, Leo added that Michael had to listen to him because the Pope had a document in his possession that proved that Emperor Constantine himself had given Constantinople, and actually large parts of the Western Roman Empire, to the Pope. Meaning all of this was actually his. And that wasn't the only document that the papacy had as evidence that they were the ones in charge. In fact, there was an entire series of extensive legal documents dating all the way back to the Carolingian era, which expanded the legal rights and protections of the Pope and gave him broad legal jurisdiction, all of which supported the Pope's position of papal supremacy. It was a really strong argument. There was just one small problem with these incredibly influential documents. They were all completely and utterly fake. We don't know who wrote them, but we do know that they weren't produced until Constantine and Charlemagne had been dead for centuries. And while it isn't clear if Pope Leo knew that they were forgeries, it seems that Michael probably did. I mean, when Emperor Constantine had transferred the imperial capital from Rome to Constantinople, why wouldn't he have brought the religious capital with him? And why would he have left it in Rome and give control over his new imperial capital to the Bishop of Rome? For Patriarch Michael and the Church of Constantinople, the Roman arguments of supremacy didn't make much sense. Furthermore, the Church in Constantinople believed this matter had been settled all the way back in the 5th century, when the Council of Chalcedon established that the bishops of Rome and Constantinople were equals. Well, mostly. That council had decided that Constantinople would actually be the highest court for ecclesiastical issues, meaning that ultimately it was Constantinople that was in charge, not Rome. The trouble, though, was that Rome never accepted that part of the Council of Chalcedon. So while Constantinople thought this whole thing had been settled long ago in their favor, Rome saw it a very different way. And at the end of the day, Pope Leo wasn't about to cede Constantinople over a council decision that every single one of his predecessors had rejected. And Patriarch Michael wasn't going to accept a bunch of forged documents simply because they were being vouched for by a bishop who couldn't even make a decent loaf of bread. So they were at an impasse. And to resolve it, Pope Leo IX sent a legate, led by Cardinal Humbert. And Cardinal Humbert was, to put it bluntly, kind of an asshole. He had absolutely no talent for diplomacy. And I don't know if Leo just didn't realize how rough around the edges his subordinate was, or if he did, and he just thought that this guy was the best way to deal with Patriarch Michael's aggressive posture. I genuinely don't know. But when Humbert arrived, the emperor and other dignitaries welcomed him and his companions. But Patriarch Michael ghosted. He'd clearly had enough of the Pope and his crackers. So things were off to a great start here. And then time passed. 
and it was increasingly clear that negotiations between Constantinople and Rome weren't going anywhere. And then right in the middle of it all, Pope Leo IX died. And because it takes a while for a new pope to be selected, that meant that Humbert was mostly free to respond to this bread crisis in whichever way he wanted to. So he waited until the patriarch prepared the Hagia Sophia for the upcoming mass of the Divine Liturgy. And the Divine Liturgy was an event that, among other things, was intended to bring all believers together. All of them, even the living and the dead. And once the preparations for this moment of complete Christian unity were finished, Cardinal Humbert gathered his things, entered the Hagia Sophia, walked up to the altar, and laid down a bull excommunicating the patriarch and all of his supporters. I got your unity right here. It was a bold move, especially since the Pope was dead, so it wasn't clear if he had the authority to do that or whether such an excommunication would even be valid. But Humbert did it anyway. And in response, Patriarch Michael excommunicated Humbert and all of his supporters. And that is basically the beginning of the Great Schism, one of the most dramatic breakups in history and one that persists to this day. Now, at the time, it's likely that the individuals involved didn't realize that this argument over bread and whether it was okay to have a cookout on Saturday would lead to a split in the church that would last for about a thousand years. But breakups do tend to be like that. So here we are. And that means that as the Normans are sharpening their swords and picking out new plots of Italian land that they'd like to own, and as Stigand was back in England, basically practicing religion without a license and daring anyone to stop him, the church was tearing itself apart. And the papacy was on a path where they would eventually ally themselves with the Normans against the Byzantine Empire. All over bread and weekend barbecues. Sometimes you break bread, sometimes the bread breaks you. But speaking of controversies, strange bedfellows, and forged documents we have a growing situation in England. You see, the return of the Godwins didn't just mean that Godwin and Harold were once again fixtures in court and were, increasingly, the gravitational center of power in the kingdom. It also meant that Queen Edith was back in the royal bedchamber. And regardless of how she might have felt about her husband imprisoning her in a nunnery while he hunted the rest of her family down, and also regardless of how she might have felt about that very same husband handing over her brother and nephew to the tender mercies of Duke William the Bastard, the fact of the matter was she had a job to do. The kingdom needed an heir, and her family needed that heir to be a godwin. They had far too many enemies to take any chances with someone else's kid sitting on the throne. This had to be dealt with, and soon which honestly must have been a tricky situation for poor Edith. But then it gets trickier. Because if you knew anything about King Edward before you listened to this show, it was probably that Edward was, to put it delicately, way too religious to bone. In fact, the way King Edward is discussed in most pop histories gives the impression that he was born at about the age of 85, and then he took his daily tea with all the saints and even Jesus himself. Just non-stop. And the problem with that story is that it's, well, just a story. 
The real Edward was very different. And there's nothing in the record that indicates that his lack of children was the result of him saving his body for Christ or whatever. In fact, when King Edward was crowned, the archbishop who conducted that coronation had prayed that he would produce an heir. And it's very likely that that same prayer was made at Edward's wedding to Edith. Furthermore, in the Leofrich Missal, which was a document from early in Edward's reign by the Bishop of Exeter, who was one of the king's close advisors, it reads, quote, give from his loins offspring to reign, end quote, which is pretty clear. So if King Edward was just too holy for sex and he was living a life of pure abstinence, that must have been a fact that he was keeping secret from all contemporary writers and, it appears, even his spiritual advisors. Furthermore, if Edward was motivated by religion, the spiritual system of the day actually demanded that he produce an heir. Abstinence would have been against the heavenly role that he was expected to play as king. And the fact was that Edward was actually quite healthy and in his 40s. And during this era, men were believed to be perfectly capable of having children up to at least 60. So chances are that Earl Godwin, Queen Edith, and the kingdom at large were all holding out hope that an heir would soon be on the horizon. And even King Edward might have been hoping for that heir. And this hope might have been motivating a lot of what's been happening in the story. Do you remember how that fight between the Godwins and the crown had begun? It was when Eustace of Boulogne visited court specifically to discuss something with Edward. And we're not told what it was. But then on his way back home, he attacked Godwin's lands. Well, here's the thing with that. Eustace had a daughter of marriageable age at the time. And King Edward had been married for quite a while and had not produced an heir. Furthermore, do you remember what happened when the king outlawed the Godwins? He put his queen into a nunnery, essentially declaring that this marriage was off and he was back on the market. And here's the thing. During this time, any issues with fertility were blamed on the woman in the partnership. So it's very possible that this conflict between the crown and the Godwins had partially stemmed from the fact that Edith was seen as failing to produce Edward an heir. And the Godwins were simply too powerful for the king to casually set Edith aside and find a new, hopefully more fertile wife. But then along came Swain and his nonsense. And let's be honest, he would have made a very good excuse for the king to finally make a move on the Godwins. And sure enough, that's what King Edward did. And he also set aside his wife, which gives me the sense that he might have been hoping to get a new wife. But as we know, if that was the plan, it didn't work out. So now Edward was back here with Edith, who has been failing to provide him with a child for years. And this all could explain why he was dumping so much energy into the construction of Westminster Abbey. Maybe he was hoping for a divine assist. Unfortunately, nobody was kind enough to write anything like this down. And even if those writings did exist, they didn't survive. So we can't be sure exactly why he was doing any of this and what truly motivated all these events. This is all just conjecture. But it is possible, and to be perfectly honest, I think it's a lot more plausible than Edward being a religiously celibate king. I mean, if Edward wasn't even trying to have a child, something would have appeared in the contemporary records. I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet on this, that somebody would have had something to say about it, since one of the main jobs of a king is to make little future kings. And the fact is, monarchs aren't like normal people. 
their bedchambers aren't exactly a private place. And what was going on in there, or maybe wasn't going on in there, certainly wouldn't have been private. It was political, and it was honestly fairly public, at least among those who were walking in the highest echelons of power. So I'm just highly skeptical that there could have been a policy of abstinence, whether it be holy or otherwise, and no one would have known about it or commented on it. That actually would have been a huge deal, culturally, politically, and even spiritually. Something else that would have been a huge deal is if King Edward really did bequeath England to Duke William of Normandy, as Robert of Jumiege claims. If Edward had done this, it would have been like a bomb going off in the English court. Everyone would have been talking about it. And yet, we only hear about it from Norman authors who are writing long after the fact and who are known propagandists working to naturalize French control over England. Furthermore, according to Robert's claim, that bequest took place while Edward was healthy, young enough to reasonably expect an heir, and also in a position to remarry if he felt that might improve his chances which it kind of looks like he might have wanted to. So the only way that this bequest makes any sense is if it was just an outright assault on Earl Godwin and the English. Basically a, fuck you and all you people have put me through. You had me exiled, you killed my brother, and so no, I'm giving your stupid kingdom to the people who gave me a home. And let's be honest, that isn't impossible, but it would have been dramatic. Dramatic enough, in fact, that we'd expect to hear about it in the contemporary records. Furthermore, as Edward's reign dragged on, and as Edward got older with no children in sight, there still is no mention in the English sources about any intent to give the kingdom to William. And that's strange if that indeed was Edward's plan. So my guess is that while Edward was cozy with the Normans, either the bequest didn't happen, or if it did, Edward kept it to himself because he knew he would have faced revolt from his court. But personally, I think it's very likely that Edward and Edith wanted an heir, were trying to have an heir, but one or both of them were infertile. It happens. So I suspect the story of Edward bequeathing the entire kingdom of England to William was just a story manufactured long after the fact as a way to justify the conquest. And I feel like one of the biggest hints here is that no one calls him William the Inheritor. He's William the Conqueror. Though, again, because we don't have a diary from Edward explaining his thoughts and views, all of this is just guesswork. And this is just my own pet theory. But regardless of the details, it was clear that now Godwin finally had a little time to relax. He was back in power. His sons, Harold, Leofwina, and Gerth had all returned to court and were serving in highly ranked positions. His other son, Tostig, was married to the daughter of the Count of Flanders, one of the most powerful figures on the continent. His daughter had returned to her position as Queen of England, and hopefully a grandchild would soon arrive. And sure, Swain was dead, and Swain's son, Hakon, and Godwin's son, Wolfnoth, were both still being held hostage by Duke William the Bastard. But now that the Godwins were back in power, that was something that they should be able to resolve. So things were looking up. Even Godwin's relationship with King Edward seemed to be improving, because in 1053, the king invited Godwin and his sons to Winchester to share Easter with him. So Godwin, Harold, Tostig, and Gerth came to Winchester for an Easter celebration with the king, and, I assume, Queen Edith. 
And while we aren't given details of specifically how they celebrated Easter, I wonder if Edward and Edith were aware of the link between Easter and those older fertility festivals. Because it would be fun if they knew and, you know, were just hedging their bets a little bit. But however they were celebrating the religious aspects of Easter, these were still English nobles. And Easter wasn't brunch. It was a feast. And feasts were important ritual events for the English. Boozy ritual events. Events that reinforced bonds. And God knows some of those bonds needed to be reinforced. So chances are the celebrations began some days prior to Easter Sunday, and then went all the way through to the proper Easter celebration. And by the following Monday, we're told that they were still feasting. So all was right in the world. This is how it should be. The bonds were being fixed. The only trouble, though, was that Godwin was about 60 years old, and it had been a hard 60. He was probably only about seven years old when his father had been betrayed by King Athelred and Edric Strayona's brother. And it was a betrayal that resulted in his dad becoming a pirate. And we don't know how long that lasted, nor whether Godwin was a part of that life. But it was a difficult start. Now somehow, Godwin had managed to recover from that brutal beginning and rose through the ranks to become Canute's right-hand man by the time he was in his 20s. But the reign of Canute had been a stressful one. The fledgling empire that Canute was building was beset by crises, and whenever the king left to deal with them, it was Godwin who took the reins in England. Then, after Canute died, there were the reins of his sons, Harold Harefoot and Hartha Canute. Not exactly easygoing years, especially with Queen Emma lurking in court. Godwin's life was one long string of stress. There have been wars, questionable executions, hot mess sons, both his and Canute's. And then his entire family was dragged into a civil war and exiled, with their only chance at a return coming through piracy, just as his father had attempted. And while Godwin ultimately triumphed, it had not been without cost. He'd lost his firstborn son on pilgrimage. And while he had expelled the Normans, now his grandson and youngest son were held as hostages by them. And as someone who seems to have been close with his family, that must have been an incredible source of strain and grief. You can't deny that Godwin was an incredibly successful politician. But at the same time, he lived an incredibly difficult life. And now, he is expected to feast with the king for multiple days. And all of English politics and honor culture demanded that Godwin do his duty here. His family's future depended on mending this rift. So I have no doubt that he drank, and he ate, and he caroused, and he did all the things that were expected of an 11th century English noble. And then, on Easter Monday, Earl Godwin collapsed. His body just couldn't take anymore. Based on the description of his condition, scholars believe that he had a stroke. His sons rushed to their father's side and grabbed the Earl and carried him to the royal bedchamber. Efforts were made to revive him for several days, but Godwin remained in a comatose state. And on April 15th of 1053, he finally died. His body was taken to Old Minster, the resting place of the kings of old. And in many respects, that was what he was. And so with great pomp, Earl Godwin was interred near his old liege and ally, King Canute. 
The Vita tells us that the people of Wessex honored their fallen patron. And I'm sure they did. Kings would come and go. But Godwin was always there to guide England through those treacherous waters. He didn't just hold his family together. He held the kingdom together. And now he was gone. It was a serious blow. But that didn't mean that the kingdom was without guidance. Earl Godwin, for all his talents, hadn't done this alone. He was the head of an entire house. And his influence in governance had been possible thanks to his network of family and friends. And they were still there. His daughter, Queen Edith, was still on the throne. His sons, Leofwina, Gerth, and Tostig, were still in court and exercising significant amounts of power. His wife, Githa, who was from Danish aristocracy and had often advised her husband, would now be there to advise her sons. Even Godwin's close ally, Archbishop Stigand, was holding Canterbury and Winchester and could likely be relied upon to help out the house. And leading the family would be Godwin's eldest surviving son, a man who in many ways was cut from the same cloth as his father. He was stable and he was unflinching in his style of leadership. And he was the man to whom the mantle of responsibility would ultimately come to rest, Harold Godwinson. Let's go!